0: And welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm
1: Sharon Shu, and I'm Cara Sellison. Today we are going to be wrapping up our discussion of Strong Poison. We are going to give away the who done it and the how done it. So if you aren't quite finished with the book and you don't want to be spoiled, listen for our warning for the point of no return, uh, so that you can turn the podcast off and come back when you're done. Yes.
0: So without further ado. One last time into into the
1: breach. (laughs) So, Sharon. Yes. In our last episode, we alluded to the adventures of Miss Clemson. Yes. But we didn't have time to explain in depth. Do you want to give our listeners like a quick summary of where Miss Clemson is and what her mission is? Yes. Because
0: of the very good detective work of Miss Murchison last time, Peter knows that a will has been made for Mrs. Rayburn. He knows that the will is, as far as they can tell, not in Norman Urquhart's office. So he dispatches Miss Clemson off to the little village where Mrs. Rayburn lives and says, you know, basically gives her the vaguest directions possible, which he, he knows her vague. <laughs> He's like, there will be some person who's part of the household who's taking care of her because we know that she has dementia. Um, and can't care for herself. And so he's like, basically, find that person, attach yourself to them, come up with some kind of way to get in the house and to to search for the will. And Miss Clemson, being the enterprising spinster that she is, is like, great, that's all I need. Um, <laughs> and we get, you know, another one of her delightful letters when she first reaches the village. And in in a book full of very good lines, I think this is my favorite one. You know, she's telling Lord Peter about how the carriage of the train that she takes to this village was, was very warm, and she would have liked the window down, but there were businessmen who would have probably objected. And she says, men are such hothouse plants nowadays, are they not? Quite unlike my dear father, who would never permit a fire in the house before November the 1st or after March 31st, even though the thermometer was at freezing point. And Hothouse Plants is like in all caps. It's just, it just makes me so happy.
1: These men, they're so fragile.
0: They're so fragile. Yeah, so she, she arrives in the village. She sets herself up in a boarding house. She finds out that the attendant who takes care of Mrs. Rayburn is one Miss Booth. Mm-hmm. And Miss Clemson sets herself up to run into Miss Booth and after a whole comedy of errors (laughs) of trying each tea house in the village after another because she's like, well, surely this woman has to come out and take tea sometime.
1: Right. And I think that one of the other people at the boarding house mentions that, you know, Miss Booth is... Seen in the in the village mm-hmm. visiting tea shops
0: yeah so miss clemson goes on what the narrative calls an orgy of teas <laughs> uh, to try to locate miss booth and she finally does
1: and manufactures a meeting
0: yes manufactures a meeting gets this person to you know start confiding in her all about uh her profession and so forth and she notices Miss Clemson notices that Miss Booth is reading a book called Can the Dead Speak? And the narrative says in a single moment of illumination, Miss Clemson saw her plan complete and perfect in every detail. Which for listeners who've been following along with us, should probably very much remind you of the way that Peter solves the case in whose body. Mm -hmm. Where suddenly in perfect detail, he just all the pieces fall together for him. And so she works up a way of just casually mentioning that, you know, she doesn't believe in spiritualism, but some of her friends have said that she's remarkably sensitive to the occult forces and gets herself invited over to have a little seance with... Yeah, as one does. Yes, as one does. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where, where we are. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, you know, we get a little background about Miss Clemson, which is... We know from previous books that she's been a single woman who kind of had to make her own way for a while. Mm -hmm. And she's been a paid companion. She's lived in boarding houses. So, like, she has a lot of life experience and a lot of time that she's been able to spend observing people. Mm -hmm. And she also conveniently at one point in her past, spent some time in the same hotel as someone who investigated spiritualists. Mm -hmm. And this person taught her all about the tricks that they use. So Miss Clemson knows how to fake a seance.
0: (laughs) And the book goes into like
1: great detail. Oh yeah, about
0: the the different apparatus that she purchases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she like wears a garter with a, a little box that she can clap and.
1: Right. Well, she doesn't. It's not exactly that she claps it. It's like a like a tin,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and she squeezes it so that it pops.
0: Oh right. Yeah.
1: Here's a here's a side note though. You are not the only person to get that wrong because I know that you have read to say nothing of the dog. Yes. And in to say nothing of the dog, there is a character who's just like I having read Strong Poison, know how to fake a seance. Mm-hmm. But the character To Say Nothing of a Dog is described as clapping the two halves of the box together.
0: Yeah, okay. Which is a
1: detail that annoys me because I'm just like, that's not
0: right! <laughs> that's not what she did.
1: <laughs> that's not how it is.
0: Well, and I was always like, that must be remarkably difficult to do without giving yourself away. This makes much more sense.
1: Yeah, no, it's kind of like, you know, the board game Trouble where you Pushes on the thing and it Mm -hmm. pops okay much better (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just i am relieved to finally air that grievance about to say nothing of the dog
0: which is in all other ways a perfect book (laughs) yeah but she you know she gets like little wires that she can put up her sleeves to kind of move the table as Mm -hmm. needed she's very well prepared which i love and she's also she has like a brief moment of anglo-catholic conscience where she's like is this (laughs) <laughs> this is the right thing to do, but then, like Mephistopheles, she like she imagines Lord Peter saying a hearty "Well done, Miss Clemson," and she just goes along her merry way. <laughs> Peter the Tempter.
1: Yeah, and also we should mention that she's under a very tight schedule. Mm-hmm. She has one week. Yeah, because there it's almost the end of the month. They're almost out of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, Harriet is about to be retried. And I think there is, there is like as comical as this section is, there is an undercurrent of hurry and rush Mm -hmm. a bit. I feel like even the fact that the narrative follows Miss Clemson into all these different tea shops—it's—it's it's a way of getting us as readers to kind of feel that, like, no, time is passing, the pages are turning. Like, what? How is this all going to get wrapped up? You know?
1: Yeah.
0: I think maybe one other thing to mention before we get into the actual seance is there's this part where Miss Clemson, like, she's seen Miss Booth, she's trying to manufacture the meeting, um, and not give away that she's following her. And the narrative says the male detective particularly when dressed as a workman, errand boy, or a telegraph messenger is favorably placed for shadowing. He can loaf without attracting attention. The female detective must not loaf. On the other hand, she can stare into shop windows forever. <laughs> Ms. Clemson selected a hat shop. So it's again, that pointing out of the difference and even like what spaces the different genders can access, or at least mm. like what spaces they're seen as belonging in and what behaviors yeah. belong and not, right?
1: Right, that it's fine for men to just stand around, Mm -hmm. but women need to always be purposeful or it stands out.
0: Yeah, or shopping.
1: Yeah, (laughs) but I mean, like, shopping is a purpose. Like, but you can't just hang around for the sake of hanging around because that looks weird. Exactly. Like, maybe not necessarily suspicious, but noteworthy. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have a a reason to be where you are, whereas men can just be somewhere and it be, you know, they're just there.
0: (laughs) They can just occupy space
1: yeah they don't need a reason
0: yeah except in this case Lord Peter wouldn't have I don't think he could have come up with a reason to know Miss Booth or to be invited in
1: yeah well I mean like he would have had entirely different avenues though that's true but this is all part of of Miss Clemson's role is Mm -hmm. is to provide access yeah to places where someone else it would seem strange but she's a nosy old lady of course she wants to Mm -hmm. wander around and visit tea shops, and of course she wants to sit down and chat to anyone who will let her. Right. You know?
0: What else do old ladies do? (laughs) Do you want to talk about the seance?
1: Sure. So, we find out that Miss Booth, who is a retired nurse hired to be the caretaker for Mrs. Rayburn, she is a student of spiritualism and Miss Clemson realizes right away that she's a beginner. Mm -hmm. And also that she is not um not cautious not sufficiently cautious in her learning and that she's been associating with a spiritualist who who's pretty clearly fraudulent as yeah miss
0: clemson recognizes that like right away if i'm remembering from my studies correctly an interest in spiritualism i think we we tend to associate with like the late 19th and early 20th century So like thinking in particular about W.B. Yeats and his circle, he was extremely interested in like spirit writing, occultism and spiritualism. But I think by the time Sayers is writing this book in the 1930s, spiritualism is kind of on its way out. It's it's seen as something that more elderly people who are more susceptible.
1: Yes. And Miss Clemson gets a little bit more information from the other boarders at the house where she's taken up residence who tell her about how this Mrs. Craig one of them got a letter from Mrs. Craig about how her deceased husband had arrived at a séance and asked for special prayers blah 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 and she's like you know things that were like obviously meant to trick people into spending a lot of money on further séances
0: <laughs> scammers got a scam
1: yeah but so so Miss Clemson knows that she's dealing with someone who is vulnerable to suggestion
0: Overly credulous, say.
1: Yes. And she also finds out that this Mrs. Craig is away. So conveniently, she's out of the picture. And it gives an opening for Miss Clemson to kind of run the show. So she goes to the house, has dinner with Miss Booth, and then they begin the seance. And Miss Clemson doesn't rush it too much. But she is On a timeline, and so once she has Miss Booth good and convinced that something supernatural is going on, she starts using the metal soapbox on her garter to make popping noises, which was a common form of communication. I don't know if it began with the Fox sisters, or if they just took advantage of something that already existed. When were the fox sisters? Let me see. The fox sisters kind of started in the 1840s. Okay. Yeah. The fox sisters could pop their toe joints. And so that's why that was the noise that they used,
0: like making the cracking noises.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure if the rapping originated mm-hmm. with them, but it was rapping or or like tapping was people were just like, ooh, this is how the spirit is communicating yeah. with us. Yeah. And so so Miss Clemson is using her soapbox garter to make the rapping or popping noises, and they communicate that way once for yes and twice for no, mm-hmm. and then counting out the alphabet, which just sounds <laughs> so <Right>? exhausting. <sighs> oh. So we get Miss Clemson using her powers of observation mm-hmm. to to feed into this the same way Someone who was running a scam would. She looks around Miss Booth's sitting room and takes note of the pictures that are there and turns photographs over to read names and mm-hmm. things like that. yeah, she does she's very good at the deductive
0: close reading.
1: Yes. And so she puts on a quite a convincing show. She realizes that that Miss Booth is interested in spiritualism specifically because there's someone who's died that she has unfinished mm-hmm. business with. So Miss Clemson is also
0: drawing on her, her understanding of human nature, right? That this right. old photograph that's kind of in pride of place, there's a flower next to it. It's a first class frame in central position yeah. and on the mantelpiece. So Miss Clemson figures out from those clues that like, oh, this is someone who mm-hmm. is remembered fondly, but probably not currently in the picture.
1: So the first session is mostly just Miss Clemson getting Miss Booth on the hook.
0: I love the little bit where, so she figures out that the man's name was Harry, and then they're wrapping out the letters, and quote-unquote Harry says, remember who came between us? And Miss Booth is writing, (laughs) you know, she says yes, and so she's spelling out what the clocks are saying, and she says F-A-T-H-E, and then she says, no, no, Harry, it was meh. So, you know, Miss Clemson was going towards father- and then she says, you know, no, it was meh. Uh-huh. And then A.D. concluded the table triumphantly.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I just like, oh, she's such a fast thinker.
1: The goal, obviously, is for Miss Clemson to gain Miss Booth's confidence and to come up with a reason to get to search the house and find mm-hmm. this will. Which is such, it's such an overwhelmingly daunting right? task. And Miss Clemson is just like, all right, here I go. And manages mm-hmm. it because she is just a highly capable Incredible. person like if i got tasked
0: with that i would i would just cry and you know run away so yeah. that i never had to disappoint lord peter again
1: i it would never occur to him like this would never well, occur I to mean, me i would hope like not. the the best i would do would be like to go and like meet the person and be like tell them the <laughs> truth and see how far that got me. Probably not very far, well, honestly. I mean,
0: Peter does that a little bit later on, so you know, you never know.
1: Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Peter does try it. Um, I don't know how far that would have gone with, with this food. <laughs> it reminds me of a Leverage episode, which Leverage is my favorite TV show, and you know, there's a lot of the this type of thing where they have to come up with a, a plan mm-hmm. on the fly, and it's always something outlandish. Excellent. But so, but yeah, so in following. You know, they have another sitting the next night. And... Okay, so the second night, they use a Ouija board. Miss Clemson, just genius levels of creativity. Like, she's introduced the idea of a control, which is, like, the spirit who, like, gives you access. I think so. Basically, like, the doorman of the spirit world. (laughs) So Miss Clemson has introduced a a character to Mm -hmm. be that. She's also introduced a bad influence, who calls himself George Washington, to disrupt things and like add a layer of complexity because she can't be too mm-hmm. direct and like miss clemson has such a good understanding of that yeah. you know she she knows that she can't lead too quickly into anything and that she has to kind of populate these spirit encounters with these other characters
0: she has to do some world building first
1: yeah and she brings up common names that probably are names of people that Miss Booth went to mm-hmm. school with. One of them afterwards, Miss Booth is just like, I wonder if that's so-and-so who went to India. I don't know what happened to her. And so, like, then later Miss Clemson comes back and is like, let me tell you all about my life yeah. in India. <laughs> and, like, as Miss Clemson points out, at one point she's like, it's not, it doesn't matter what you say, the other person's sure to mm-hmm. help you out. It's very true, yeah. It's all picking up on context clues and giving hints of things and letting the other person kind of finish mm-hmm. the thought. And it's all very, you know, we've talked a little bit about how terrifying it is that it's so easy to kill people. <laughs> it's also just, like, terrifyingly easy to manipulate yeah. people. You know, like, we all like to think that we are clever and savvy. Mm-hmm. But, like, when you get down to it, people who really know what they're yeah, doing.
0: Which we might say detective writers. Yes. Right? Like, this whole scene, I mean, this whole interlude, it's just... I feel like it's such meta-commentary on what detective fiction does with both Clues and Red herrings. Mm. So we have the good yeah. reader in Miss Clemson, the good detective, who can kind of pick up these different pieces and understand the correct narrative behind them. But then she's also able to create a narrative and sort of direct Miss Booth's attention to wherever she wants it to go and to like get all sorts of information out of her. And I think that's, you know, later on when she gets her to start looking for the will, the clue is just the letter B. And it's very, you know, it's like Miss Clemson chose it very, very deliberately because B can refer to almost anything, books or yeah. bureaus or this. And like barring that, then you have, you know, the color black or brown or yeah. Or big or... Yeah, exactly. So it's just like, it's, I don't know, it almost feels like it's both celebrating the the kind of detection that we as readers have to do, and then also making fun of like, how over determined the kind of reading that we have to do, Mm -hmm. where that's always the problem with the detective fiction, right? Is like, you don't know what's actually a clue until you finish reading the book. Right. And so you have to kind of imagine that everything's a clue, but also not because, you know, then you might get tricked by a bad spirit named George
1: Washington. (laughs) They switch from using the soapbox to doing spirit writing. Mm -hmm. So Miss Clemson as the medium would be, she goes into a trance and is writing on a piece of paper in character as the the spirit, which speeds things up significantly. Yes. Good job, Miss Clemson. (laughs) But Miss Clemson uses that to bring a message from the spirit realm, supposedly from Mrs. Rayburn, Mm -hmm. which she can do because, you know, Miss Rayburn is She's not in a coma, but she is basically insensible. Like she doesn't really speak mm-hmm. which is a a question that Miss Clemson asked earlier. And it sounded like she was just being politely curious about her new friend's patient, but she was also finding out whether or not she could use this method. Right. And so she she invents this little story about how Mrs. Rayburn is, you know, stuck in an in between place. She's not dead, but she's not fully in her body and There's something that she needs taken care of. And so she's struggling to reach them through the spirit world. And basically, she says that they need to find the will because Norman wants it. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, Miss Clemson has Miss Booth so thoroughly on the hook that she's just like, oh, well, we better find it and we better send it because it must be important. Yeah.
0: And she does that over not three successive evenings, right? Because on Sunday, she... (laughs)
1: has a a bit of conscience. (laughs) Yes. There was no seance due to the revolt of the medium's conscience and she goes to church instead.
0: Yeah. But she is remarkably efficient and then it also, you know, the search gives us a chance to see the inside of Mrs. Rayburn's house. We actually even see Mrs. Rayburn and Mm -hmm. again, it feels like, you know, this line of old wealthy ladies that starts with Agatha Dawson and goes through lady dormer and now ends in mrs rayburn like Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know if sarah's just got exhausted of you know wealthy old women at this point but (laughs) but there's something very i don't know to me like when they start going through the house there's almost this nightmarish quality where Mm -hmm. there's all these rooms just full of stuff right? Like all kinds of stuff. The implication about Mrs. Rayburn was that when she was an actress, she was also very free with her favors. And so people gave her money, jewels, you know, she often converted the jewels into investments. And that's how she became so wealthy. But it's just like all this stuff jumbled around, and Miss mm-hmm. Clemson sees everything, and the narrative says it was the room of a woman without taste or moderation who refused nothing and surrendered nothing to whom the fact of possession had become the one steadfast reality in a world of loss and change mm. and then later on, like a few paragraphs down, Miss Clemson is in the room with Mrs. Rayburn, and she's She kind of can't help herself, she creeps over to the bed, and she looks down and sees an old, old face so tiny in the vast expanse of sheet and pillow that it might have been a doll, stared up at her with unblinking, unseeing eyes. It was covered with fine surface wrinkles like a hand sodden with soapy water, but all the great lines carved by experience had been smoothed out and crumpled. It reminded Miss Clemson of a child's pink balloon from which nearly all the air has leaked away. The escaping breath puffed through the lax lips and little blowing, snorting sounds and added to the resemblance from under the frilled nightcap straggled a few lank wisps of whitened hair. And it's like, I, I don't know. I it, it, i haven't fully put together my thoughts here, but there's something about all three of those old women and their wills where like, they have so much power. Like they have so much narrative power, right? It's their mm-hmm. impending or actual deaths that like kick off the events of all these books. But then when we finally see one of them, she's completely helpless and frail and fragile. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that juxtaposition that's, I don't know. I mean, you know, Miss Clemson feels overcome by a sense of sacrilege. I I don't know that I would go that far, but like there's something about that juxtaposition that's really interesting to me. I think especially when like we've had book after book of people, you know, even Peter sometimes musing out loud of like, what's the harm in pushing off, little old lady who was gonna die anyway and then now we finally see one of them as a human, right? And it's like, no, no, there is massive harm in that because you would be killing a human being. Right. And like that's not okay no matter how no matter how convenient it would be for someone else. Like the childishness, I think, of Mrs. Rayburn, her helplessness just really just really drives that home, I think. Yeah.
1: I think that there's a contrast between the three women, right? Like Agatha Dawson, Mm -hmm. you know, she had just a massive amount of, of willpower yeah and like us as she was so determined not to die mm-hmm. and she, you know, she had a very decided opinion on the matter. <laughs> she did. And then Lady Dormer, her health disintegrated quickly, but we get the impression of her as just like a lively kind person who liked people and the reason she became ill was because she decided to go out and see fireworks. And then you have Rosanna Rayburn, who lived a full and... What's a good word? She Like, she lived a very full life, and a life that was full of experiences that taught her to hold on to everything that she could get. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, not let anything be taken away from her. Yeah. And I feel like in particular that parallels with agatha dawson you know like agatha dawson had everything taken away from her Mm -hmm. specifically her life the one thing that she desperately wanted to keep and i don't like i don't know yeah i think in the other books these elderly women and their wills like their plot conveniences Mm -hmm. it is different to have mrs rayburn here on the page and and to be confronted with her like as a still living person yeah because for so much of this book she's a plot convenience Right, right, and she's a a figure in the abstract.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have a a clear follow up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have I didn't have a final thought there, but it's just like they're it's like on the one hand, like yes, three old women with wills in a row, but also they're all very different, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think. I don't know. Like, I think you could make an interesting argument that the power that they have in death being greater than the power they have in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And whether that's a deliberate commentary on to so many people in these narratives, these women are a lot more valuable dead than they are alive. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's an element of commentary there with the, the idea of like surplus women, mm-hmm. you know? Certainly, yeah.
0: I also wonder if it's something Sayers is sort of staunchly in middle age now mm-hmm. when she's writing this part and she she herself died at an age that I think we would we would think of as quite young now. And so I wonder if as she was growing older, we know her mother had died kind of while she was writing Strong Poison, if she's just kind of thinking about mortality more. And I wonder if this moment where we see Mrs. Rayburn, like Sayers can never put a character on the page without humanizing them in some way, right? And I I wonder if, you know, there's sort of this aspect where she'd been treating the characters as sort of just plot devices, but then when confronted with one that she couldn't just shuffle off that way, like, I don't know, you know? I feel like there might be a reason she doesn't return to this well ever again. Yeah. After this point in the books. And, and you know, we've talked before about how the books kind of take a turn anyway. Mm-hmm. But it, it does kind of feel, to me at least, like, yeah, once you're confronted with the old, old woman tiny in the bed who looks like a child's pink balloon, like, you, you kind of can't, mm-hmm. can't go back from that, right? You can't go back yeah. to, like, old lady dying somewhere with a will conveniently like as a, as a non-person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Before we went on that long rabbit hole, <laughs> I do think it is funny that after all the searching after hours and hours, um, <laughs> Miss Booth is a, uh, just, just happens to say, you know, Oh, well it's, if it weren't for the fact that the spirit medium told us to, to look for something beginning with B, I would have thought that the will would be in the safe. <laughs> and you just get yeah. <laughs> like, I just imagine Miss Clemson, like, inwardly collapsing with despair, you know? (laughs) Of course. Of course, there would be a save. Yeah. Though she does save it because, of course, they find the the save combination in a black book. But yeah, they find the will. Miss Clemson very enterprisingly, um, like, steams it open when she's boiling the water for, for hot water bottles because it's now so late she has to stay the night. And mm-hmm. she finds that, to the contrary of what Norman Urquhart claimed, the actual will leaves both Mrs. Rayburn's real estate and 50,000 pounds to Philip Boys, with the remainder left to Norman Urquhart, uh, who is also the sole executor.
1: So so yeah. And suddenly the thing that Peter has been looking for all along is right there, which is a motive for someone to kill Philip Boys.-hmm. Yes. So is this
0: the point of no return for our readers or sorry listeners?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think probably because it's time to, because it's time to talk about what whimsy does in response to the information that miss Clemson sends him. And it's also a time to talk about miss Murchison having her own little extra adventure. Yes. Yes. All right. So listeners,
0: if you have not finished the book, and do not want to be spoiled. This is your warning to go away. <laughs> <laughs> but come back, come back. I know, yes, do come back. I never know how to like politely say it, but uh, <laughs> this this is the point at which you would want to stop listening to us, shall we say?
1: <laughs> so, Karis. So, Sharon. Who killed Philip Boys? Philip Boys was murdered with arsenic by his cousin Norman Urquhart. Yes. And the motive was that Norman Urkit. Had been given a power of attorney by Rosanna Rayburn, Mm -hmm. which gave him access to all of her money. Mm -hmm. And that he had used her money for his private speculations and lost the bulk of it Mm -hmm. in the Magatherian Trust crash. Yes, which if you're going to try to bilk somebody... Or if you're gonna
0: if you're gonna use someone else's money for speculation, you should you should at least attempt to be good at the speculation. Right. Yeah. Because otherwise, you lose all the money that someone else
1: is supposed to inherit, and then you have to kill them. Yep. Yeah. So as to the how, that's what Peter has to figure out. Yeah, and let's go back to Miss Murchison mm-hmm. because Miss Clemson and Miss Booth have sent the will to Norman Urquhart's office you know, Miss Murchison sees it arrive. And shortly after it arrives, Miss Murchison comes up with a reason to go into Mr. Urquid's office. Mm -hmm.
0: Partly because Peter had said, you know, make sure there are witnesses around who like
1: see that there's a will so he can't destroy it. Right. So she goes into his office without knocking and she catches him kind of standing at the mantelpiece. And so like the office is in An old building, old enough that all the rooms, of course, would have fireplaces. Mm -hmm. And Miss Murchison has the thought that he looks as though he were protecting or defying somebody. And he's also staring her in the eye, Mm -hmm. which reminds her of a little set of rules which Lord Peter Whimsey, half in jest and half in earnest, had once prepared for the guidance of the cattery. Of Rule 7 in particular, which ran, always distrust the man who looks you straight in the eyes. He wants to prevent you from seeing something look for it which side note
0: someone please write us the fan fiction of lord peter's <laughs> rules for the catter- cattery because i'm like what, what's what are rules one through six
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, i think that you're just hungry for some fan fiction so
0: i really am someone
1: please write some fan fiction for sharon yes
0: yeah, so each rule and then like the circumstance under which a cattery <laughs> member had to uh <laughs> had to, use, had to use the rules please
1: but yes. Yeah, so she looks away from mr urquhart's face and notices like a a line at the edge of the paneling behind his head Mm -hmm. She's just like "Hmm, that's curious and so she waits for an opportunity to be alone in the office so what she she does is she leaves work that evening and then she kind of like goes and waits down the street Mm -hmm. until the other clerk leaves and mr urquhart leaves (laughs) and this is this is where they have their fun little encounter, mm-hmm. where Miss Murchison has glued herself to a, a butcher's shop window because she can't loiter, as Miss mm-hmm. Clemson mentioned earlier, but she can't stare into shop windows forever. And Mr. Urquhart pauses and says, good evening, choosing your supper shop. Miss Murchison says something about how she wishes that Providence had seen fit to provide more joints suitable for single people. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Urquhart says, well, you should cease to be single, Miss Murchison. Miss Murchison giggled, but this is so sudden, Mr. Urquhart. <laughs> and he, like, blushes and leaves really quickly. Yeah. And then Miss Murchison goes, that thought that would settle him. It's a great mistake to be familiar with her subordinates. <laughs> That'll show him. So she, she gets the charwoman to let her back into the office, and so she goes in to have a hunt round and conveniently she failed to return the lock picks mm-hmm. that she was given to use on the deed box before. So there are one or two conveniences in this book you know like yeah. it's a convenience that Miss Clemson noticed the combination for the safe mm-hmm. when they were searching it's a convenience that Miss Murchison still has the lock picks but I like I don't think that those are so out of the way that I would call them unreasonable no i don't think so either they're well they're well within the rules yeah are they convenient yes are they totally plausible and understandable yes mm-hmm. we give them a pass yes yes but yeah so miss murchison goes and finds a secret a secret cubbyhole basically mm-hmm. in norman urquhart's office and what does she find inside <laughs> well in addition to the will
0: she finds a small packet full of white powder. Oh, what could dun.
1: it be? What could it
0: be? Yes, yeah, she asks herself that. So she hurries over to to Peter's place, where uh, I love this. There was the Honorable Freddie Arbuthnot, looking amiable; Chief Inspector Parker, looking worried; Lord Peter, looking somnolent, and Bunter, who, having introduced her, retired to a position on the fringe of the assembly and hovered hovered there, looking correct. Dear Bunter. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, they basically lay out like all of the motive here, right? Which Mm -hmm. is that, yes, Mr. Urquhart's been speculating with the money. He lost it, so he needed to get rid of Philip Boys. You know, that's the motive. And then Bunter, of course, being Bunter, has a whole little chemical apparatus set up. Yes. So that they can test the powder. And, you know, Peter saying, like, yeah, all along, it's been really suspicious how, like, meticulous Norman Urquhart has been in, like, making sure he was never left alone with Philip boys after, like, mm-hmm. making scrupulously sure that, you know, they always ate things and, you know, met each other in front of the servants. Like, he's like, there's something fishy mm-hmm. about someone who, like, sets up their own alibi even before the thing happens,
1: Right. Like Whimsy says, did you ever hear of a meal hedged round with such precautions? Exactly.
0: Yeah. And even the fact that, I mean, it comes out that the the water jug in Philip Boyce's room had been empty so it was just like you know he'd made sure that there was no way anybody could be like oh did you slip him something at some point right like right. everything was eaten by somebody else or drunk by someone else i also love the part where parker says what would one naturally do if one found one's water bottle empty <laughs> ring the bell said whimsy promptly or shout for help added parker or said miss murchison if one wasn't accustomed to being waited on one might use the water from the bedroom check <laughs> i just love that i'm <laughs> like She's like I just you know it's never occurred to Peter to fetch some water. But yeah, so Bunter tests the white powder. It is of course arsenic. Mm-hmm. And then Peter sits up late at night trying to figure out how he did it.
1: It's a little bit of an echo of what he does in whose body, isn't it? Yes,
0: definitely. Brings down all these books and once again, I mean Peter doesn't have a, a breakdown this time, but once again we kind of see it from Bunter's point of view, where after Peter has sat up nearly all night, he rings the bell, calls for a bath and says, like, I, I know how mm-hmm. he did it. Yeah. And dear Bunter, you know, he's putting the books away and he looks at kind of the collection of books and he mm-hmm. goes, Why, of course. Why what a <laughs> mutton headed set of chumps we've all been.
1: Yes. Bunter the detective as well gets it. <laughs> I think I wanna talk for just a second because I think it's an interesting contrast between This scene Mm -hmm. and the scene in Whose Body. Yeah. Because, you know, in Whose Body, he sits up and, like, the thing becomes clear in his mind and it causes him to panic because he, like, feels this weight of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, like, this scene is kind of, like, it's so peaceful. Yeah. Like, he's sitting up. He has all these books out. He's thought about it. You know, you you don't get the same peek into his mind the way we did in *Whose Body*. Mm-hmm. But you know, like he calls Bunter and he says, like, "I know how it was done," yeah. and he's totally calm. Yeah, and like, and
0: then he just falls asleep.
1: Yeah, like Bunter goes away to like draw his bath and make some coffee, and he comes back, and Peter is peacefully asleep. Mm-hmm.
0: And it had mentioned that Bunter was silently and anxiously sitting in his own kitchen, like, waiting to be called, right? So, Bunter... Right. Bunter's kind of expecting another breakdown,
1: I feel like. He's definitely anticipating it as as a possibility. hmm And I, I think Bunter, like, you get the impression that he's a little relieved. Yeah. Because I think, like, if Peter... This is really, the, like, the last possible day yeah. <laughs> before they run out of time. And if Peter didn't figure it out, the result would be bad. hmm In this case, Peter has undertaken finding the truth to save someone else. And I think that that makes a big difference in his response. Mm-hmm. With Freak, even knowing that Freak was guilty, even knowing that Freak was a cold-blooded murderer, the responsibility of sending someone to the gallows like weighed really heavily on Peter. Mm-hmm. But now Peter is in the situation where there is someone that he cares about who is going to lose their life when they're innocent Mm -hmm. with that in the balance I think I think Peter really feels like it's a fair trade yeah especially since you know Norman Urquhart is prepared to let Harriet Vane go to the gallows exactly with no remorse I think
0: that's one of the linchpins right is yeah
1: it's I think similarly
0: to how he viewed Pemberthy Mm -hmm. it's like the the criminal who is willing to let someone else suffer in their place. I think that's when things yeah. become very clear to Peter. Yeah. Of like, not only did you commit this murder in cold blood for your own benefit, but like you're not even willing to step up when mm-hmm. someone else is endangered. And that's whether or not he has romantic feelings for the, the person in question, mm-hmm. like that's
1: intolerable to him. Right. It is not acceptable to let someone else pay for what you did. And yeah, you know, there's a little bit of that playing Fields of Eaton complex. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And he does kind of punish Norman Urquhart for it in the most, you know, in a, in a, (laughs) in a, I I mean, I wouldn't even say spiteful way, but like, you know, I think this is like, we see Peter kind of at his most savage in some sense. Like, so if I may, like what happens is he calls Norman Urquhart over, you know, oh, there's a little bit with, there's a little aside with a manicurist uh, where Peter's like, I'm going to tell you something and you're going to, you're going to help me track down some evidence um and this becomes clear like very soon after what what it is that he needs uh and it is it is where he's like i'm gonna just tell you Mm -hmm. but he yeah he calls norman urquhart over and gives him some coffee gives him some turkish delight Mm -hmm. and starts spinning a long long tale about yes all about the case and this and that and comes up and is like, well, you know, I figured out your motive. I also figured out how you did it. So remember Sylvia's intuition that his hair was too sleek Mm -hmm. and the omelet juggler broke some eggs. Mm -hmm. So Peter Singh, what you did was you like either found a cracked egg or you cracked one yourself and you introduced a few grains of arsenic into it and when Philip Boys made that omelet that night, that, you know, that did the trick. And Norman Urquhart goes like, that that's preposterous. Like, I ate the omelet too. Are you saying that, you know, somehow all the arsenic just gathered into one part of the omelet? <laughs> and Peter's like, no, you've been, been Dread Pirate Robertsing it. You've been, like, dosing yourself <laughs> for... Probably about two years that you could eat all that arsenic and not feel any effects. And by the way, mm-hmm. your manicurist has saved some of your nails and some of your hair. And they're just like bung full of arsenic, <laughs> and that's that. And and you know Norman Urquhart tries to tries to like weasel out of it. And Peter very coolly is like, well, then can you explain to me why um I when you came in and I served you coffee and Turkish delight, they were just covered with gobs and gobs of arsenic and you know would would you like to try to be sick now (laughs) and Norman Urquhart runs off into the bathroom and you know Parker apprehends him and takes him out in handcuffs and of course it comes out that like Peter's bluffing right but you kind of you kind of get the sense that like he would he would have just done it you know Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like he he would have done it and somebody had talked him out of it. Yeah, Like, maybe, you know, maybe Charles being like, well, you don't want to, like, confuse the toxicologist report when it does come back. But but Peter is very cold.
1: Very, very cold. There are two things about that scene that I, that strike me as funny that I want to mention real quick. One is that... I wonder, was the How Done It just a huge revelation to readers at the time? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like modern readers are not going to be that surprised by the idea of Norman Urquhart building up an immunity to arsenic. Right, because we've, because all, we, seen we've all seen The Princess Bride. have all seen The Princess Bride. It's not that new of an idea to us. And then the other thing is that I think. It's really funny because I think I'm correct that you also read The Chronicles of Narnia when you were pretty young. Mm-hmm. Did you also long to try Turkish delight and then were really grossed out when you found out what it's actually like?
0: Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. think... I was like, what is this magical confection that would make me betray my whole family? <laughs> and then when I tried it for the first time, I was like, this? Really? Yeah. Edmund, you little shit. <laughs> like <laughs> But to be <sighs> fair, I mean, there was a war going on. He probably hadn't right. had a in, like,
1: three years. So, I, I suppose. Right, I actually have a very like, tender really... spot in my
0: heart for him. But,
1: I, I but, yeah. I, like, the older I get, the more I'm just like, oh, Edmund, you were having a hard time. No mm-hmm. one ever listened mm-hmm. to you. Uh, exactly. But also, Edmund, <laughs> like, seriously, that was the best thing you could think of. And so, yeah. like, I don't know that at this point in her life, uh, Sayers knew C.S. Lewis socially. But I do think, like, the contrast between <laughs> that and the description of Turkish Delight here as, like, a disgusting sweetmeat. Right. Uh, like, like, Peter obviously thinks that it's just absolutely gross.
0: Yeah, it gluts the palate and glues the teeth. <laughs> Nauseating mess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And just, <laughs> like, and I know so many people who, like, finding out what Turkish Delight is just feels like a betrayal. Yeah. Because of. They're just like, really, this right, um, so it just yeah. it just strikes me as as really funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't eat Turkish delight, dear listeners, if you haven't tried it yet. I feel like mochi is like the thing that you think Turkish delight is gonna be, mm, right, like yeah. they're much better. It's like an Anna Green Gables when she was like, the first time I saw a diamond, I was so disappointed because I thought it would look like an
1: amethyst, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, don't bother with Turkish Delight. Also, don't betray your family. Don't betray <laughs> your family. Don't murder anyone. Don't murder Glad anyone. Glad we cleared things up. <laughs> just just <laughs> note that down, everyone. <laughs> Some life advice for your for your friends at the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> but, yeah, so, so Peter tricks Norman Urquhart into confessing by claiming to have poisoned him, even though he hadn't. Mm-hmm. Though he probably wanted to. He probably wanted to. Mm-hmm. You talked about how, like, we see Peter being really savage. And it's described, like, when Whimsy is telling him that he's supposedly been poisoned, he says, there's something menacing in his rigidly controlled voice. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Whimsy has been sitting there, kind of putting on his silly ass persona for a couple of hours or so, mm-hmm. you know, to give the supposed arsenic time to work. And, like, he suddenly just, like the silly ass switches off and yeah
0: mm-hmm.
1: it yeah. is it is a change
0: it's a delight i love the yes. part where um, it says, couldn't you try to get up a few symptoms said whimsy sarcastically should i bring you a basin or fetch the doctor does your throat <laughs> burn is your inside convulsed with agony it is rather <laughs> late in the day but with a little goodwill you could surely produce some display of feeling even now like <laughs> oh I just I love Peter when he's petty he's being so petty here
1: <laughs> yes and Norman uh, Urquhart deserves every second of it every last bit of it yeah
0: because also like what a horrible way to off your cousin my goodness mm-hmm.
1: like yeah ooh. and like you've been you've been giving him little doses for a while and then you decided to to wipe him out and you know it's just the process of dying from cynical poison is described in a good bit of detail mm-hmm. in the first couple of chapters yeah. during the judges summing up, and it does not sound nice. It is not pleasant. At all. No. It sounds awful. So it's just like...
0: Yeah. Ugh. And even though, you know, we have spoken at length about what a terrible person Philip Boyce is and how little he deserved Harriet, mm-hmm. like, nobody, nobody
1: deserves to go like that. That's just terrible. No, I mean... Like people don't deserve to be murdered, just in general?
0: <laughs> yes. That, like to to be clear, yes, I agree with that statement. <laughs>
1: <laughs> As we just said, please don't murder people. Especially yeah.
0: not like this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you think there's something too to be said, given Sayers' belief in the idea that like everyone should have work that they are suited to and work should be dignified and mm-hmm. You know, vocation is important. Do you think there's there's something to the fact that in these first five novels, you see, like, the culprits are always people betraying their own professions? Oh, right. I so have like, not thought about that, but... Yeah, like, we have two doctors, one caretaker and one lawyer behaving very badly and often either taking advantage of or murdering the very person or people that they should be taking care of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I like I think that you could make a very interesting argument for that. Mhm. And again, I think it's something she moves away from a bit, you know, in mm. later books, but it's it's like it's just such a I don't know, reading these all in order in quick succession and like doing deep dives. It's like, oh, there's just like a lot of themes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's really interesting. Add that to the list of things that would make a really interesting paper. <laughs>
0: If anyone wants to write us fan fiction or papers, you know, our inbox is open.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We would be delighted to see your thesis project. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Very much so. Which reminds me that hopefully soon we will have a listener as a guest on the podcast to talk about glands. Yes. And the the medical trends of, of the 1920s and 30s. Yes,
0: Uh, a listener reached out to us. They had the knowledge of the history of neuroscience in a way that we certainly do not. So stay tuned for a special little episode on on that.
1: Yes, I am excited to learn a little bit more about this thing that I'm just like, I know I can see that this is a theme, but (laughs) I don't know the context, so I don't know what I'm looking at. So I am
0: excited to learn more. Yeah.
1: I mean, many a thesis
0: project has been started that way, so... I don't know enough about that. Let me go to school for more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't go to school. I just ask our listeners. <laughs> smart.
0: <laughs> that makes it's, you very smart. It's so much more affordable. Right. I think we should talk about the fact that when Harriet is acquitted, mm-hmm. a
1: free woman, she finds
0: Eileen Ed Price and Sylvia Marriott waiting for her.
1: I want to circle back really quickly to the description of the beginning of the last chapter okay yes the chrysanthemums Um, yes because you know the book opened with the crimson roses on the bench which looked like Mm -hmm. splashes of blood and we talked a little bit about you know whose perspective is that from and here we have they were burning chrysanthemums on the judge's bench they looked like burning banners Mm -hmm. and it says that the prisoner too had a look in her eyes that was a challenge to the crowded court and you know like then we have just the formalities of Stating that Harriet Vane is free and Mm -hmm. like Sir MP Biggs rises up large and majestic (laughs) to to be like, we need to state it very clearly that she had nothing to do with it and that someone else is being charged for this crime and she's absolutely innocent. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, Sharon, whether you think that we're seeing that possibly from Peter's perspective or if it is meant to be Harriet Mm. or if it is meant to be you know like an omniscient like the court at large
0: yeah yeah Uh, why not all three Uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a cheat i i like the idea of peter like i don't think peter wouldn't be there Mm -hmm. you know
1: well we know that he was there because he ducks out yeah right iluna says i saw him drive off the moment the verdict was given so Mm -hmm. he was there but he he leaves immediately
0: yeah There's also a bit earlier in the book that implies to me that it's Peter's perspective because when Mm -hmm. Miss Murchison goes to see him at home for the first time, she, it says she expressed admiration of the big bronze chrysanthemums heaped here and there about the room. And Peter says, oh, I'm glad you like them. My friends say they give a feminine touch to the place, but Bunter sees to it as a matter of fact. So there's a way in which the chrysanthemums are already Mm -hmm. sort of tied to Peter. Um, Yeah. So I feel like it's a, at the very least, it's a good callback. Mm-hmm. I think it could be Harriet as well. I feel like burning banners is a, a thing that she would think, but yeah. But I, I feel like the description that she had a look in her eyes that was a challenge to the crowded court is is very external yeah. to her. So I do think,
1: I don't know. I, I That we're distantly from Peter's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that the chrysanthemums look like burning banners, like that's like, that victorious imagery. Yeah. And, like, I like the idea that, you know, these burning banners kind of, like, wipe out the splashes of blood that the Red mm-hmm. Roses were at the beginning. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. So, Harriet Vane is free without a stain upon her character, as the judge puts it. Mm-hmm. And so ended sensational to the last one of the most sensational murder trials of the century. Yeah. Yeah. But as we already said, Peter has departed mm-hmm. and is not there when Harriet Vane comes out. Yeah. And Harriet actually, you know, she says, Where is Lord Peter Wimsey?
0: I must thank him. And Illunid says, You know, he's gone. Oh, said Miss Vane. He'll come and see you, said Sylvia. No, he won't, said Illunid. Why not, said Sylvia? Too decent, said Illunid. Which is high praise from Illunid. Right? She says, I like that young man. You needn't grin. I do like him. He's not going to do the King Cafetua stunt. And I take my hat off to him, which is the like, you know, the king going and finding the beggar maid and making her the queen and Mm -hmm. like that, that whole power imbalance thing. Yeah. Um, And she says, if you want him, you'll have to send for him. I won't do that, said Harriet. Oh, yes, you will, said Sylvia. I was right about who did the murder and I'm going to be right about this.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, And it remains to be seen. Yeah. But Yeah. It will it will be a book or two before we return to that. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually the closing of the book. We get no. this short little scene
0: mm-hmm. of
1: Lord Peter Whimsey going down to Duke's Denver that same evening and finding the family in a state of perturbation, all except the dowager, who sat placidly making a rug in the midst of the uproar.
0: <laughs> the uproar is over. Uh, so Mary Whimsey finally told her family she's marrying Parker.
1: <laughs> yes and gerald and helen are reacting as expected (laughs) Mm -hmm. but peter takes mary's side
0: of course Mm -hmm. of course and he says you know like just you watched charles is going to be a big man one day um and if you want to have a row with somebody have it with me my god said the duke you're not going to marry a policewoman not quite said whimsy i intend to marry the prisoner what (laughs) said the duke good lord what what (laughs) if she'll have me said lord peter whimsy
1: the end yes so he stepped back but he has not given up
0: Mm -mm. not in the slightest nope and thank
1: goodness Sayers continued the series
0: (laughs) oh thank goodness that would have been quite the massive cliffhanger (laughs) yes
1: we will encounter Harriet Vane again but not in the next book which is going to be five red herrings so we don't have that long to wait right but we do have to get through the trains. Yeah. We must get through the trains.
0: Which speaking of getting through the trains
1: <laughs> We must gear up.
0: Yes, we have to gird our loins. And also because life is quite busy right now. I've started a new job and yay. poor Caris is Yay, yes, I, I love the new job. It takes up a lot of time. Uh and brain space. And poor Karis is single-handedly editing all of these episodes. And could also use a break. We are going to take a
1: very short break. Yes. We're just going to basically skip one episode. Mm -hmm. We plan to have our special episode hopefully next time in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And then after that, there will be a gap. So
0: Yes. Essentially, we are taking a month mini break during which we will be doing a bunch of recording (laughs) um, and trying to work ahead again. But yes, our... Our dulcet voices shall return soon-ish. Just not as soon as you're used to. And we do hope our listeners understand. So
1: thank you. All right. But join us next time in two weeks Mm -hmm. for our special episode. And then we will see you again four weeks after that when we return to talk about trains and Scotland. She said weekly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe, you know, maybe we'll find things to enjoy this time.
1: We will. We there are things to enjoy. There's yeah. just also trains. Yeah. Yep. Train schedules. Yep. Yeah. And and I think there's some charts. And... <sighs> yep. And some <laughs> Scottish accents. Oh, Oh, no, I'd forgotten about the Scottish accent. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at whimsypod. That's whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com.
0: Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do.
1: Join us next time for more Talking Piffle.